as we've come to this part of our service this Lord's Day morning, this Sunday morning, we've already made note in prayer as well as song and even comments how joyful and how thankful we can be for the great blessing of God on our behalf. But it certainly would not be inappropriate to at least make two very brief statements. First of all, again, along with Brother Ted, to express the heartfelt appreciation to our mothers today, hoping that your Mother's Day is a very happy and joyous one, hoping that this day for you is a time of family, a time of togetherness, and a time of appreciation on the part of others for all that you have done and all that you continue to do as, as a mother. But also to make note that as we've concluded our gospel meeting here so recently in the past on Wednesday, how wonderful it was to appreciate the fervor, the ardor, the strength and encouragement that we each were able to receive from the Word of God, from the mutual support of sister congregations, and from ourselves. A reinvigoration, a renewal of strength and vitality. I think each of us, as we appreciated the lessons on the Ten Cups of Love, were led to maybe see, by way of perspective, some new things about the idea of love, and to appreciate maybe better than ever the Bible's teaching on that glorious and wonderful subject. So I know we're each thankful for the lessons Brother Ben brought to us, but also for those men that led us in singing, who led us in prayer, and all the other activities that maybe from time to time go, go hidden to us, but nonetheless a necessary part of making that a successful gospel meeting. As you might have noticed in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson that I would ask us to consider today has to do with elect of God. That very phrase is found in the course of the New Testament. And might I ask that we give some consideration to the meaning of that text this morning as we look interestingly at what that means. First, some introductory comments if we might. We've already made note of just a few of those things at the top. I would point out that as we contemplate the strength capable on the subject of love to encourage us, might we each challenge ourselves to let that be a vital part of all of our assemblies, our Sunday mornings, our Sunday evenings, our Wednesdays, to let the fervency of love challenge us to be that which God would have us to be, not only toward ourselves but toward our visitors, others in the community. For in fact, God is love, 1 John 4 verse 8, and He asks and demands that we also exemplify that in our lives. The topic of election, perhaps there are certain seasons of the year and times when that is a more common topic than others, maybe like it was last November when we elected a president, but nonetheless, that is also a Bible topic and a Bible theme, and it would not do us at all an injustice to give some attention to that subject today. Might I submit to you that election is a rather commonly understood thing. Our children learn about it in school for their history teachers, their social studies teachers, encourage them to in fact have appreciation for the whole idea of electing various officials, various persons to certain offices. And so it is as one considers the notion of election, we might be ever so tempted to understand how often we engage in that activity. We elect officials at the federal level, like our president, members of Congress. We elect at the state level our governor, the representatives of, at the state level. We also elect on the local level our county executive, various other individuals like the mayor, a whole host of local offices. 
we all understand, I think, how the whole notion of election works. It's basic to the way that this kind of government that we have operates. And in the context of election, it in fact puts in place those who occupy various offices and exemplify leadership in one way or another. It is very fair to say, and might we never forget, because this will be an important point as the lesson continues, that the way that that election proceeds is the person will occupy the office who receives the most number of votes who in fact is put in that place because a majority or the most total number of votes is received by that person. He or she is popularly elected. That idea, though, points out the following to us. Note the sequence of events that must be true in order for that to come about. First of all, as the time for the election approaches, various individuals make it known that they have a desire to occupy that office. In the course of the days that follow, they may come around to your door and give you a little election card and ask for your vote. They may wish to make themselves known to you. They perhaps put an advertisement in the paper. But as the time approaches, we well understand the date for that election is set, and individuals thus proceed to cast their ballot, to cast their vote for the person whom they think would best serve in that office. In the finality, those votes are tallied and a decision is rendered. That is to say, the winner is declared. I say all that to say that as we turn our attention to the Bible, as you've already heard me say that election is a Bible topic and a Bible theme, do Bible elections work that way? Are there any substantial differences that you and I should know about? Are there things that in fact are dramatically opposed to this idea that make Bible election a wholly different idea. Let's investigate that together as we proceed first of all to note the following. Where are some of those passages where election and elect is used in the Bible? We might well begin in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse number 4. In this first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul very directly said, Knowing, brother beloved, your election of God. At the very outset of the Thessalonian epistle, Paul very pointedly and rather frankly said to the brethren in Colossae, knowing, brother beloved, your election of God. He pointed out that this was a fact that they knew. It was a contemplation that they had well in mind, and it was a consideration not at all foreign to them, something they should have known. What is it they were to know? Your election of God. Might I ask us to consider something interesting about that? Now, if you might wish to also notice, I've listed some other passages very briefly that employ that same term. In Colossians 3.12, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and to those brethren he said, they were the elect of God, holy and beloved. Might we thus understand together that here were individuals in Thessalonica, other individuals in Colossae, and both were to appreciate the fact that they were elected of God. In the last place, perhaps in 2 Timothy 2, verse number 10, we also notice on that occasion one more time, Paul referred to individuals and noted that they were the elect of God. It is thus apparent, isn't it, that there were then some individuals upon earth 
For Paul and the other writers didn't merely refer to the entirety of the human family as being the elect of God. There were certain individuals who occupied a position who could well be termed the elect. And that was certainly a very prized and a very special position to occupy. With those kinds of ideas forming in our mind the thought of the importance of this, let's revisit the Thessalonians text. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 and make an additional set of statements about what we read there. Knowing, brethren, brethren beloved, your election of God. Might I ask you to notice, first of all, some emphasis placed upon the wording as it appears. Knowing. K-N-O-W-I-N-G. Knowing. What does that indicate? What's the idea behind it? And how might that be so valuable for you and me today? I've made some comments that I wish you to, to consider again. Notice again that opening comment that we might consider together. At least one can readily appreciate that most of the time when the votes are tallied for a given election, a given person knows that he or she is the winner. A person is aware that no longer are the other individuals in the running for that. The tally has been set, an individual has been declared the winner. Might I submit, there's also an idea, at least somewhat similar to that here, knowing your election of God. These brethren in Thessalonica were to know that they had been elected. They were to have no doubt in their mind about it. It was not to be something about which they were uncertain, something about which there was an ambiguity, something that was not fully and completely appreciated. They had been elected. But the understanding of that point leads us to notice two thoughts today that seem to run counter that, to that idea. There are individuals today who are in a position of not knowing whether or not they're elected. They think that they are. They may hope that they are, but they're not willing to say, I know that I am. That's interesting, isn't it? For Paul said to these Thessalonian brethren, they were to be able to know this. But also there are others I would submit to you in our world who think that they have been elected, but they never have been. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that sad? Individuals who are comprised of the position of their heart thinking that they have been elected by God, when all the while, once we study the criteria for determining that election, they've never met the criteria. They have not been elected, though they think they were. Can you imagine the confusion that would reign in our world if a person were to go up and occupy the county executive's office thinking that he was elected when he never was? There are those in the religious world today in that very position, thinking that they've been elected by God, and yet they never have been. It's fair to say that those problems lead us directly to at least address one of them in some passages I'd wish you to consider with me. Is it possible for you and for me to know that we're elected? Is it possible for us to arrive at a position in faith to where there's no longer uncertainty about our election of God. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, the inspired writer John, the beloved apostle of love, made the following statement. As he spoke about what had been written and the character of that gospel according to John, 
he made these statements. He said, Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. John, what is it that people can know? That Jesus was the Christ and that you can have life through his name. Friends, that's something that can be known. No reason to have doubt about it. It can be fully appreciated and known absolutely. But consider also the following passage. In 1 John 2, verse number 5, the same writer, the apostle of love, John, there affirmed again the character of a certainty and appreciation, the ability to know of one's relationship to God. I would submit to you that on that occasion, as the word know is employed, in fact, John there tied directly that notion of knowing with one's obedience to the nature of what God has delivered. They go hand in hand. If a person knows God, he'll do what God has commanded. But John quickly says that person who does not do what God has commanded, despite what he says, he does not know God. Notice in that same book, 1 John 5, 13, near the close of that beloved and inspired epistle, the apostle there very easily wrote that these things are written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God and that believing you may have life. Notice he said that these could know of their salvation. Point blank, they could know of it. Today then as we appreciate the problems that we affirm by some. There are some who, members of the Lord's body, they've been elected by God, but they aren't sure. They're not certain. There's a degree of doubt in their mind. Friend, if that be our position, may we lovingly in faith strive to mature to the point that like Paul, we could say, knowing, brother beloved, of your election of God the degree of that knowledge, that knowing, perhaps races us to 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. Consider the Apostle Paul as he approached near the close of his life in the flesh. Recall with me the very victorious words that he spoke. He said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Did you hear in Paul's words a sense of uncertainty? a sense of doubt, a sense of lacking in terms of assurance. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Later in that same book, 2 Timothy 4, verse number 8, did he not there say that I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. What was it that Paul did not say? He said there might be, there could be, there perhaps is. No words like that are found. He said there is laid up for me a crown of life. Is there one laid up for you? Are you sure of it? You can be sure. We should be sure. And might we then notice how that leads us to the point of election. In fact, as we've looked at the word knowing, consider what else is found in that verse we should give some consideration to what that phrase, election of God, refers to. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. 
We understand what the word election means, I think. Probably most of us could define that. It has to do with a selection or a choice. And as we go to the polls and cast our ballots, we are choosing or selecting that individual to occupy the office that is under consideration. It is to be noted in this verse that here is a dramatic distinction between what we commonly consider an election and this one. The election in, second, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 is a divine election. It is not by popular consultation. It is not by popular decree. It's a divine one. Note again the language. Knowing, brother, beloved, your election of God. And that preposition, it would seem, means election by God. Notice God's the one casting the ballot. It's not that you and I are electing Him as God. That's not the idea of the verse. He is God regardless whether you and I honor Him as such or not. He is the awesome, almighty, absolute God of heaven. But He has cast an election and chosen various ones to be His followers. Chosen them to be those who would honor Him properly. Notice again that's very different. You can well think of that this way. It is an election, and there's one principal ballot cast. It's God's. Who does he vote for, and who does he not? I'd submit that will occupy our thinking for most of the rest of the lesson. Again, if you ever have it to make notes in your Bible, that might be a time to make one. It is not that you and I are electing God as God. It is he is casting the ballot and making a choice on the part of someone or something. Who is God electing and how does he do it? We have learned already today some thoughts concerning how you and I go about electing officials for our government. How does God go about performing the election he has described in this text before us? Might I submit to you that before we finish this verse... Let's at least briefly notice another text that relates to it. It's the one that I chose as the lesson text this morning. If you wish, hold your finger there in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, and let's read 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 again. These verses fit together so well and so very nicely. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Do you see some comparisons, some similarities between the two? I've pointed out three of them. In both passages, Paul exerts and exhibits a giving of thanks for the brethren. Both are stated in each passage. Notice the identical phrase, brethren beloved, occurring in both texts. Finally, notice the election of God is mentioned. In the first one, it was verbatim, the election of God, 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it's in the phrase, chosen. God has chosen. He has selected. He has, in fact, made His choice. It's now up to you and me to determine who has he chosen, how did he pick those that he chose, because I'd submit to you, that's a vital question. And it's one that has troubled the human family for centuries. May you and I understand this with fullness and with clarity 
and appreciate those whom God has selected and those whom he has chosen. Along that line, might I ask us to look at more carefully the text of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Here we find all the answers to the questions that we have raised. The question might be, when did this election take place? How does God cast his ballot? How does he in fact make his choice? Let's see if we can determine the answers to those questions. But we are bound to give all thanks all the way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Let's pause there. That leads us to our third point today. From the beginning to salvation. When did this election take place? You and I know again, that's an important point in the elections that we involve ourselves with upon earth. For the presidency, it's always the first Tuesday in November of those years that, that are appointed as so. When we elect our county executives and the governor of the state, we know that those are at certain dates. When did God cast his ballot? The text says from the beginning. God cast this ballot a long time before you and before I were born. He cast this ballot, the text says, from the beginning. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we encounter that same phrase. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we again see the employment of that very famous phrase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. All of that found again in John 1 verses 1 to 3. But perhaps one other text would be worthy of consideration. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. As we study that one very interestingly, notice how the Apostle Paul uses that phrase and how it ties to this one that we read here in 2 Thessalonians. In Ephesians 1 verse number 4, Paul says, According as He, that is God, hath chosen us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Here is another passage in which it is said that God chose you in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Thus, this selection, God cast this ballot before this earth was ever fully fashioned and formed. This election, my friend, took place a long, long time ago. It's not that God made this selection or this choice ten years ago or a hundred years ago or even at the time Jesus was crucified on the cross at Calvary. Paul said God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world was ever laid that might immediately cause us to wonder, how could this be any sensible election then? There had been no humans created by then. Remember, God, the human race was created by God in the terms of Adam and Eve on day six of God's creative efforts in Genesis chapter one. But this election took place before the earth was even fashioned. That occurred early on day one, didn't it? How can we understand this election? Might I submit to you as you consider that? Maybe that thought could be embodied in this idea, as the Scriptures will point out. It is the case that God, when He made this selection, when He made this choice, did so in the following way. 
as we discuss it, note the why. Why did God make the election in the first place? To salvation. That's the term Paul employed, wasn't it? The whole purpose for God making the choice, the whole purpose for Him casting His ballot, if you please, was for your salvation and for mine, for the salvation of the human family. Now, who will be saved? Did He cast His ballot in such a way that all, every human being, regardless of what he or she has or has not done, will everyone be saved? There are those in our world who teach that. There are those in the centuries past who have believed that. We should look more carefully and ask, is that the way God cast His ballot? That perhaps leads us to that last phrase. You notice a moment ago I didn't finish reading the verse. Let me begin again, and let's read all of it this time. First, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. And there's where I paused and stopped before. But the verse continues through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. You see, not only do we find in that text the when that God cast His ballot, we also found out how. Who are those that are the ones He elected? Let's finish the verse. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. This latter phrase of that verse, in fact, answers completely and completely removes all of the things that have clouded the minds of men throughout the ages. Probably you have at least heard or been aware that there are some who have taught that God predestined some individuals to be saved, while at the same time He predestined others to be lost, and that predestination took place before that person was born. And there is nothing that that person can do to alter God's predestination of them. That is to say, if He predestines some person to be lost, there's nothing that person can do to ever be saved. On the other hand, if He predestines some person to be saved, there's nothing that person can ever do to be lost. Friends, that's nonsense. Notice again how this idea is presented. How did God cast His ballot? Those who He chose, those who in fact He voted for, in terms of salvation, were those who, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Let's revisit then what that statement means. This is the how that God cast His ballot. That word sanctification comes from a root word sanctify. That means to set apart or to make holy. In other words, there are those for whom God cast His ballot, and the end result is that these are sanctified. They have been set apart. They are, in fact, holy in the eyes of God. But what's more, might we notice that sanctification comes about by virtue of the Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit. Here is an activity of the Holy Spirit, a part that the Spirit plays in the election of God. You and I perhaps can now wonder, do other passages shed light on the way that that's done? And the answer is yes. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, we learn there that the Spirit has a vital role in the deliverance of the revelation of God for the human family to receive. For in essence, them to come to know what the plan and what the will of God is. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, 
a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and a conversation ensued. Verses 3, 4, and 5 of that conversation, in fact, read like this. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was perplexed. Can it be that a man can enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's the Spirit. The Spirit has an essential, vital role in the rebirth of the individual spiritually. Note again, Paul said, God voted for those who are sanctified by the Spirit. The Spirit, you see, is an essential ingredient. No sanctification by the Spirit. God hadn't voted for you. You are not a member of those who've been saved and who are saved. What way does that sanctification appear? In what way does one appreciate that fall? Notice that salvation in this text is linked inseparably in the following way. Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. There is no escaping the truth. It doesn't matter what you or I think. It doesn't matter what some scholar may have told us. It doesn't matter what some scholarly journal or article may affirm. What is the truth? For here the inspired writer says, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. He did not say or. It's not one or the other. These go together. The sanctification of the Spirit as it follows the directives of the truth and the open belief that a person has in it. Those are the ones God voted for. Those are the ones who are the recipients of salvation. They are the ones that have been elected by God. That leads us then to finish that in the following way. Let's see if we can't summarize much of what we've learned about this sanctification and what we can learn about this election. And with these thoughts, we'll draw our lesson to a conclusion this morning. We noted that this whole ballot by God was cast before the foundations of the world were ever laid. In the long distant recesses of the past, God in His infinite foreknowledge knew that mankind would sin. He knew that individuals would not keep His will perfectly, that they would transgress and be guilty of violating the will of God, and as such, that they would be guilty of sin. However, on that same occasion, God in the recesses of His mind came up with a plan, a scheme whereby those who met certain criteria would be saved. That scheme involved the sending of His Son to the earth. The fact that that Son would shed His blood and those obedient to the premises of the shedding of that blood would in fact be the very ones for whom God voted and thus God cast His ballot for the salvation of all those who would respond in obedient faith through the sanctification of the Spirit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that that's what it means because note the very next verse. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14. You might notice that this is the same sentence. There is no period separating them. But verse 14 reads, Whereunto he hath called you by our gospel. You see, God cast his ballot for the salvation of all those who will obey this gospel who will give their lives in full and open submission to the decrees of it. 
And notice the word belief was therein mentioned. You need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus did come from heaven. Believe He did live a sinless life and He did die on Calvary's cruel cross shedding His blood that those guilty of sin, that's all of us, would have the opportunity for salvation. As He shed that blood, that message is housed in the form of the gospel. When you and I believe that and turn aside from the life of sin and repent of those things, we are thus in a position to confess the name of Jesus as our Savior and to be baptized for the remission of sins. All of that's taught in the gospel. That's what the gospel has set forth. And so as we conclude our lesson this morning, the question then for you and me is, God has cast His ballot. Those will be saved who come to a knowledge of the truth through the character of this gospel. That's what we've just learned. Where do you stand now? Are you among those for whom God has elected? If not, you need to make that change today. If you know that you're living in wrong, that you're living in sin, and that Jesus died for you, you know enough to then allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you from sin. The plan of salvation again involves your belief, your repentance, your confession, your baptism. We would be honored to help you today with the latter two, and if we could, certainly that would be a privilege for us and a great change in your life. If you ever have become a Christian but no longer live faithfully as one, then notice that you are still not a part of the ones for whom God has cast His ballot. You have removed your name from the Lamb's book of life. Have it put back in that book today. We pray with you. We pray for you. If we could do any of that, would you not let it be known in haste while together we stand and while we sing?